tonight we're going to be looking at, because we are in Passion Week, and it, it's interesting that Sunday, as we celebrated last Sunday, Palm Sunday, through the resurrection is a week's time, and it actually, when you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, that covers from, of course, his, we'll say from his birth, you know, you know the, the miracles are surrounding that, and then to his, uh, say, ascension. So in that span of time, you know, you're looking at three to four years, arguably, over how long it was. So in that time, one-third of the Gospels cover one week. We thought about that. But there is, that's where everything kind of there's, there's takes. And as a matter of fact, in John, from chapter 12 um, through the end of the Gospel of John, is just actually covering that week. It was very fascinating because there was just a lot happening, a lot going on. And it was literally, as Jesus has said, and we'll see it even in our text tonight, that you know, frequently he said, my hour has not yet come. You know, when he would heal someone or, uh, you know, a particular thing was taking place, then he would convey to his disciples, in most cases, that this is, my hour has not yet come. But now that hour has come. And so we're looking at that as we'll be digging in tonight. So with that, let's, uh, let's just uh, let's pray. God, thank you for this time tonight and the opportunity to gather in your name. We do look to you, God, to speak to our hearts, Lord, as we... Just put aside more and more time just to, to seek your face, to know your will, to experience your healing touch, to experience your forgiveness in a deeper way, to learn mercy and extend mercy, or to ultimately just be closer to you, Jesus. May we not look to any formula or any type of discipline or practice to somehow cause us to be better before you, but may we recognize we are complete in you, and you then complete this work Lord, of transforming us into your image and likeness. And so teach us to pray as you taught your disciples to pray. Draw us closer to you, Lord God. Give us the humility that's necessary to be courageous. Give us, Lord, the uh, just the simplicity and the awareness that you lead us, that you know what's best for us, that you are with us. You are our all in all. And so we just thank you. Teach us your word tonight. And we just thank you, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you join me in John 16, because we're just going to pick up a portion there of Jesus' dialogue with his disciples. Um, not as much of a dialogue, a little bit, but he's just sharing. It's uh, I, I think of it as, in a relational sense, certainly he was recognizing um, that he, he was his hour had come, he would soon depart. They would have a new experience, a new encounter, in a sense. He's telling them, beginning in chapter 14, some specific detail about um, the person of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, and, and how that would change for them. Because you remember, they're a very unique group of people because they physically, visibly, with all faculties, they were before Jesus. And they got to walk with him. And I know many of us really, I, w I would have loved to be one of them. Honestly, it would be fascinating to, to see how he spoke to certain people and to hear his compassion and empathy when he spoke to those who needed healing and, or, or help or to hear the sternness and the love at the same time when he corrected the Pharisees and those who were misrepresenting the Father. And It would be amazing. But this group got to, 
but he's also teaching them, so it's, it's going to be different. It's going to change. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise from the dead, and I'm going to ascend into heaven. But there's going to be one who's going to be with you, the Holy Spirit, who will be your parakletos, which is a Greek word that speaks one who comes alongside you. Ultimately, he was saying, as you know me, he will be your my representation. He will functionally be me. He will be with you, which he was at that time, and he will be in you, is what he told them. And so, you know, this is a part of where he's presenting that, and I mention it because as we put God first, and whether we, you know, schedule and we, we collectively come together, what we would call, say, a time of prayer and fasting, or other, you know, reasons we, we spend time praying or spiritual disciplines, you know, we need to recognize that we, like this group that we're reading about, these disciples and apostles, and every Christian since then, till our generation, and even till we were called and, and taken up into heaven, we need to know the person of the Holy Spirit. We need to know that power, that work. Not just the, the essence, as some people perceive, thinking of the word spirit or pneuma, air. Um, no, it's, it's, he literally is a person. And we're told that he indwells us. At the moment you're born again, God in the person of the Holy Spirit takes up residence, indwells you. What's fascinating is if you think about it, you know, Jesus accomplished the will of the Father through the power of the Spirit. It was the power, it was the spirit that led him into the wilderness. It was the spirit that really, you know, was his strength. And so it's, it's the tri-unity of God lived out in our lives. In other words, we're going to see tonight, we, we pray to the Father through the victory of Christ and through the, in the power of the spirit. So there's the, 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 the Godhead is actually, you know, presented and we see. And so let's just jump in. Let's start at verse 16. There's going to be more of a read-through tonight a little bit um, because we're going to cover not only this latter part of chapter 16, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and also the challenges we'll face, but then we'll look at this high priestly prayer of chapter 17 of the book of John. In chapter 16, verse 16 of the book of John, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Now that's got to be going, what? what? I mean, because like I say, we, we get the totality. We get, we get to see the cross over here, the, the dark day of Good Friday and the Saturday, and then we see the resurrection. We get to see it all. But they're only on the one side. And when he says, hey, I'm here, but I'm going to be checking out, but then I'll be back. They're like, excuse me? You're going to what? And so you see, he says, you know, they asked what some of his disciples said among themselves, What's this he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Therefore they said, what is, what is this he says a little while? We do not know what he's saying. Now Jesus knew what they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. What's he talking about? The cross. You will weep and lament and the world will rejoice. See, they yelled, we know, crucify him, crucify him. They were stirred up, this crowd, 
the crowd there in Jerusalem. They were stirred up by the chief priests and, and the religious frauds, the religious men that misrepresented the Father. And so the crowd was stirred up, and they actually were so, that, that mob mentality, that, that whole bizarre reality, he, they, they were really excited. It's really, it's, it's kind of, it's really brutal. It, it's actually hard to process that somebody would yell for someone else to be crucified because that was a very torturous way to die. It was, it was intended to be so bad that when you seen someone on a cross outside the city and you're coming into that city, you go, don't be like that guy. Literally, that's why they were outside of town with their chargers over their head. But Jesus is saying, you know, you, you will weep and lament, and they will weep and lament. We know that. Uh, a deep, deep um, sorrow, confusion in their minds, fear in their hearts, because of they're going to see him. They're going to see this fraudulent process of, of accusation. It's going to involve the, the Jewish religious system. It's going to involve the Roman political system. And it's just all a, a game. They're just manipulating the system for an, a means and an end. And, and they're going to watch it and they're going to see it unfold and it's just going to go, it's going to go wrong for them. Agreed? It's just going to go wrong. Everything that you didn't think would happen and maybe even think about is now is going to happen. You'll weep and lament and the world will joy, rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. You could measure it realistically by hours that this would all take place. Because as they have seen him on the cross, and some paid attention to where his body was taken, some even participated in the preparation of his body, put into the tomb. And then that Sunday morning, when sorrow is still in their heart, when their discouragement is deep within them, they get the word, the report, that the tomb has been rolled away. He's not there. He's risen. And so think about how that your experience would be just in your faculties to go from such deep sorrow to, okay, I got to go look. I got to go check this out. And so they go, they check it out, and then there's confirmation. And you think about the two guys on the road to Emmaus. They witnessed probably the, the crucifixion. And then he just comes alongside them. We all bummed out about and he walks along with them for a while, and he just has a good time chatting with them. And he begins at the law and the prophets, and he begins to unveil to them the truth of who the Messiah was. And he, he just kind of goes along with him, sits down, has a bite to eat, and hits a switch, and they figure out who he is. I mean, it really is a, it's a fascinating story, I think. I, I call it the road to amaze us, because it really is fascinating. And, and so here, there too, they're, they're kicking dirt, their heads are down, they're sorrowful. And now they're beating feet back because they went from sorrow to joy. Isn't that amazing how it is? So you see this, you know, he uses an example in verse 21 that, that would totally make sense even to the guys, but more so to the women. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I, I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. And so he's telling them about the relationship they'll have with the Father. I believe he's 
re-emphasizing a, a truth that he's made known throughout his what we call public ministry. He's re-emphasizing it because he is speaking of the cross and the departure. And then he can get very discouraged and says, listen, just keep your eyes on the Father. It's going to come about. It's going to unfold. You're going to see uh, the truth. And notice what he says there in verse 24, that your joy may be full. In chapter 15, he's telling them, telling them there in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you and that, that, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Do you know his desire is that we would be full of his joy? You know, we struggle with our joy because we got it mutated with happiness. And happiness is related to circumstances. So we sometimes associate that being the same as joy, but it's not. You know, joy is a, is a deep, deep understanding and a knowledge of the truth and an awareness of things. It's, it's quite a bit different than happiness. It, it, the emotional expression can be similar. But he says, I want my joy to be in you. And your joy to be full. And then we see again here in verse 24, he's repeating him again, functionally in the same teaching time, that your joy may be full. So in, in other words, he's gonna, they're going to see the victory of resurrection. They're going to realize with absolute certainty he is the Messiah. They're going to be indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. And they will be able to walk in truth because the Holy Spirit will, we're, we're told in the same text we before what we read here tonight, that the Holy Spirit would, would lead and guide them in all truth. And he would convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so that's the work of the Spirit taking place in the life of, of, the, of humanity, of people. But it's also taking place in the life of believers. And they're, they're, they're like assured. Because you have doubt, right? Anybody have any doubt? You sometimes have your mind wondering, okay, so how do I know this is true? I mean, you have to reconcile that. You can't, you can't deny it because it, it rolls through. So you have to kind of work through, and there's, yes, there's an element of faith, but faith is not blind. Faith is visible. Faith is not like some hope-it-all-worked-out thing. There's enough facts and evidence. Over 500 people seen Jesus after the resurrection. So there's evidence that's working through. And so as we work through these things, we start realizing in a greater way where faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. And we start growing. And we start, man, well, they're, they're in the same thing. They're, he's telling them, listen, your joy may be full. My joy is much more full now than it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 25 years ago or 30 plus years ago when I first come to Christ. I was happy then because I experienced sin. I was actually probably joyful too. But as I've went along, I've had to work out what I really believe and why I believe it. And I've had to you know, kind of wrestle. And so do you. So I just encourage you, when you have these thoughts and questions, you just take it to the Lord. Like, God, I don't, I don't get this. How does this work? How does this unfold? If this verse means this and this verse means that, but that happened to this people, these people, how does this all work? Ask that he may give you information. You know what he says to us in regards to wisdom and truth? You have not because you didn't ask. He's not holding out. He wants conversation. And he says, then when you do ask, you ask amiss. You're actually asking to prove your point, not surrender your heart. So it's kind of fascinating how he's just so patient with these guys. And it's a model to you and I. He didn't just carry on this way for them. And then we're, we got a different set of rules or different engagement relationally. So in verse 25, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I'll, I will no longer speak to you in figurative language. 
but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and do not say, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you're speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. So there's just like, oh, I get it. Followed up by, do you? <laughs> and, and it's not in any way to, to discourage them. He's just like, listen, there's an excitement and an emotion. That's good. But understand, there's some tough moments coming. Verse 31, do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We, we know he's speaking of the translation there for the word tribulation. He's speaking of, you know, Troubles, trials, difficulty. It's not capitalized. It's not speaking of a specific event, the Great Tribulation. That's a different thing that we've studied you know, in the past and we'll continue to, to pay attention towards. But you can see what he's saying. In, in me, he's saying you, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And there's still a lot of questions in their minds. I'm confident. Because he's saying that, but you're still having to process what else he just said. That I'm not going to be here. I'm going to the Father. And then they're like, well, where, where does that leave us? What are we going to do if you go to him? But how is that going to unfold? And he said, listen, in this world, you will have trials and struggles. You'll have things that you don't understand and don't know. But be of good cheer. I have overcome these things. And that I have overcome is going to be really... Uh, a victory sign that they'll observe, so to speak, when he is resurrected from the dead because he's conquered death and hell. And the greatest fear, any right, sanely thinking person, the greatest fear that you have is death. If you don't know where you're going, you understandably should be deeply concerned. And so death should stir a healthy fear, a pondering and a wondering, the reality of our mortality. And so yet, but when we understand that we are his, we'll go through tribulation, but he's overcome. I, I know I'm his. Not because I do certain things and, and I try to achieve it, simply because I know the promise. Whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. That's why I'm saved. That's why you're saved. Now that's going to impact how I live because that love that's been poured out into me, as we're going to see, is a love that will be expressed. It'll love, it's a love that's experienced. It'll, it'll manifest itself, if you would. It'll be seen in the sense that it, it, you just engage with people differently. You have different values. You have different hopes. So as he's now teaching, as you understand, he's, he's teaching his disciples. And I, I think it's so important that we see the flow of this. It doesn't stop because there's a chapter break. I believe it just flows right on through to chapter 17. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and then said... Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. When you read chapter 17, which is um, really, it's the Lord's Prayer. 
you know, um, Matthew 6, uh, Luke 11, they're, they're called the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes we, we refer to the, our Father which art in heaven. It's, it's probably be more accurate to describe that as a model prayer, an example of prayer. The Lord's Prayer, this is really more his, this high priestly prayer of chapter 17 is more accurately described as his prayer. Matter of fact, you feel like you're kind of eavesdropping. When you're reading it, it's like, have you ever read this and go, Who's he? why is he saying it this way? It's him and the Father. So why doesn't he just like talk in their language? You know what I'm saying? But he actually is, is, is representing to the uh, disciples this intimacy with the Father, fully God and fully man, and united. They are one. And so even as we said in the first thing, for, read in the first verse, to glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. They understood that in Jewish terms. He was saying, I am God. I, I and the Father are one. Notice as, he, as, he, as, he's, as he's reflecting and modeling and exampling, not display or not trying to impress. He's just, there's such an intimacy here. That's why it seems awkward to listen and, and read this prayer, in my opinion. Because I feel like I'm listening in on somebody who's praying. You know, you're like, oh, what are they saying? You know, and, and yet you see, the, he, he said it this way for a reason. He said it in front of his disciples. He said it so they too would see the relationship between the Father and the Son. And you're going to see it. He talks with the Father. And that's his focus. But he also then speaks about those who are immediately with him, which are the disciples. And then towards the end of the chapter, he will invite you and I in, so to speak, or will be included in the prayer when he speaks to about those who believe later. So let's move along as we see in verse 2. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. You remember what he says on the cross, correct? With his last breath, it is finished. And he says in other places, I have fulfilled, I have finished the work the Father's given me to do. So he's, he's declaring of the cross, it's finished. I have finished the work. Now, it's interesting because there's a few things that are going to happen yet, right, physically to him. We know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, we probably could see that as one of the biggest victories, if not the actual victory, where he said in that, that prayer, Father, if there's any way by which this cup can pass from me, I'm open to it. But I know... Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So God in human form, emptied of his divine prerogatives, we're told in Ephesians or Philippians. And now here he is, fully man as well. And setting aside the, the pursuit of the, the, the certain hungers and appetites and whatever it may be in the physical faculty, because we know he was not tempted and he did not sin. He, he sets aside his will. And he's saying, I've, I've given this work. So we read about it chronologically before the cross. But it's accomplished, if that makes sense. God is not restricted to time the way many times we, we perceive time to be. Verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The pre-incarnate Christ, prior to coming in human body, he existed. And that's this is he's saying, listen, when I was with you, before coming as a man, this virgin birth, this miraculous life. I'm looking forward to that 
this being accomplished, the victory being accomplished, and, and the purpose of God for the regeneration and, and really, the, in a way, the restoration of humanity in relationship with him. Now in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So here's this, I, I think as he's praying that, I just think as I'm sitting there, if I'm one of them, and he's praying that, it's such a positive affirmation to me. It's such a, such a reminder. You have believed me, Dan. You have stayed with me. You have followed me. So here is he's dialoguing or conversing with the Father. He's speaking to those who were there and in words of encouragement. It's like, yes, and this, and this is why you're his and why, because you have believed. He didn't say, I, you know, eight out of ten of them were really dialed up. They, they, were, they were functioning at 78% efficiency. Uh, they're due for a raise. You know, he doesn't talk about their works at all. He literally says that because they have believed. And their belief was, it was manifested. It was seen by their lifestyle. Because what you believe will affect how you live. So here they're following him. They're walking with him. And he has such a word of encouragement. Notice verse 9. Now, this, I believe, is, we can see the context directs us to be those that were right there with him. Those, his closest disciples. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those with whom you have given me. For they are yours. And all, are, and all mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I'm glorified in them. Now, I'm no longer in the world. But these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, and that you that they may be one as we are. So here he's inviting them in and making it known to them that you have a new relationship. You're a child of the living God, which was very difficult for a Jew. A Jew could understand that ancestrally by their heritage, but they were still distant from Jehovah, from Yahweh. And so what he's saying to them and, and showing to them and, and praying to the Father, and they're getting to, to hear this, and they're a part of this holy conversation, if you would, and he, he's just saying they're, they're yours. And, and notice he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. So he, he's just basically letting them know, I'm, 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 my, my work's accomplished. And the Holy Spirit, as we, I mentioned earlier in this, this book, that he, he, the Holy Spirit will indwell you, he will be the one who comes alongside you. He will be me to you, if you could see it that way, for this particular group. And he, he will lead you and guide you in all truth. He'll bring to your remembrance the things I've said to you. So it's, it's going to be different. And so they're, but they're, they're, they're getting invited into this deep relationship with the living God. He goes on and says uh, in verse, uh, I think we're at verse 12, is that where we are? While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that scripture might be fulfilled. We know Judas Iscariot betrayed the Lord. And he is actually called the son of perdition. There's one other being that's called the son of perdition. It's the devil himself. Some have considered i was listening to pastor chuck and he was presenting that there's many who believe that judas iscariot may be the antichrist and this is the main tie to it is because of that um the phrase or that 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 title um 
Yeah, well, that's a good discussion point, but I don't think it's something you can be definitive about. You can't say no, you can't say yes. Interesting thought, but I, you wouldn't want that nickname, that moniker, right? Oh, hi, I'm Judas, son of perdition. <laughs> it's like, hmm, yeah, even Iscariot would not be a, a good uh, surname for sure. He was the only one who um, says that he's lost except the, I've lost none, I've kept them, none of them is lost except the son of perdition. This is what we call a doctrinal train wreck because did, did, did Judas Iscariot, was he set apart from all time to be the son of perdition? So there was no volition, no will on his part, no decision? Or did God give him the capacity to choose and exercise free will, and yet at the same time, God knows He's what He's going to do. It's it's this is why people this is what people divide over, because pride is bigger than intellect, and and you got to just say you know both parts have have a merit from Scripture. You look at it, and you okay, I, I got to reconcile this, but you know God has given humanity the capacity to respond to his amazing grace. He's given us the capacity to comprehend it and respond to it. And, and any time you know, we see a passage, it seems that like, it leads me to think that you know, just God has just kind of made some for this purpose. You'll always see right near that passage that leans you that way, a passage that speaks of believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. A passage that will speak of the exercising of will and then the action to follow. So that's why you can't just draw a line in the sand and make your camps with Calvinism and Arminianism and all these others. Humanity, we are so quick to say, let's just put them in a category. And once we put them in a category, it's like colors by numbers. Once you put them in there, you can start putting colors on the page. You just got to follow the numbers. And it's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. And it's sad that so much of humanity, so much of the church has been you know, really disrupted and the, and, the, and the division has been so deep. And it's because sometimes people just, you just listen, this is just what he said. This, is, this guy had the opportunity. He got, Jesus prayed all night and picked Judas. Now there's another doctrinal road, uh, road uh, crash, right? Well, why did he pick Judas? Was he like praying and paying attention for the 11 and then watching lightning and pick number 12 randomly? You know what I'm saying? It's like, no, he knew exactly what he was doing the whole time. And he, Judas always had this opportunity. You know, in John chapter 13, it says that Jesus said, I have loved them to the uttermost. To the uttermost. It means the love has been extended to, to a Judas Iscariot or to this person or to that person or to a Herod or a Haman or a Hitler. You don't have to have the H, but those just go well. All those guys were messed up. And God loved them to the uttermost. I like to think of it as to the guttermost when humanity turns away, and yet he continues to extend his love. And I believe Judas Iscariot had it to the last point when Jesus said, what you do, go do quickly. Go do it. Moving along, now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. So he's speaking these things. They speak in the world. It's not, I think it's not like he's waiting till heaven. He's, they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So a lot there, he's praying this, and most of us would probably agree. Could you modify that prayer a little bit, Jesus? Could you just take us out of the world? Because he's saying, I, I don't pray, you notice there, that you should take them out of the world in verse 15. But that rather that you would, you know, you should keep them from the evil one. I love this analogy or this picture. The Christian life parallels a ship. A ship does really good when it's on the water. But you don't want water in the ship, right? So we're fine in the world with his presence. We just don't want the world in us. It capsizes us. It sinks us. In such a simple picture, can we agree? It's so important to have, okay, I, I want to be in the world, but not of the world. The prayer of Jesus for his disciples, they're not of the world, just like I'm not of the world. They're born again. They're, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Notice we've seen it in uh, verse 17. We see it emphasized again coming up here in verse 20 about the power of the word, about his word, about the truth and taking hold of it. Much of what we face in the world today is, is literally and obviously a direct attack on obvious truth, Right? Uh, it started with sexuality. Well, that didn't start there, but it's it's it's, it's certainly accelerated in sexuality. Uh, redefine sexuality. Have it be whatever you want it to be. We can go back 30 years, and your sexual experience is up to your personal preference, which is clearly outside of the the design and the intention for from God for human beings in that regards. And then it just kept going, and then it kept going. And oh no, there's no agenda, really. 30 years ago, there's no agenda. No, there's no agenda. Yeah, well, guess what? Now you're infiltrating and, and, and contaminating children. Now we have this stupidity that says, it just depends on what you feel like. You can be, who you, you can be what you want to be. It, it's the most idiotic, insane. I'm seriously, I just don't, I, I'd like to make it sound more simpler and, and nicer. It's stupid. It's actually, absolutely idiotic to say, I mean, you can be a cat and we'll put a litter box in the classroom. That's literally happened in one of the states in this, this country. You can identify as a cat, so therefore you get a litter box in the classroom. What's that? Oh, that's even worse. It's in Idaho. Jeez. It's like, I'm just thinking, okay, you can't really make this up, could you? I mean, can you imagine writing uh, this story? I used to go into the, the grocery stores. I still do on occasion, not as much. And I look at the tabloids, National Enquirer, Star, all these rag mags. And I love to just, I look at them and I redo the headlines. I would just take part of this one and part of this one and this one. And I'd make my own headlines. It's hilarious. You should try it. It's fun. I never thought that those would actually make it like to print. I mean, you think of some of the stuff we're seeing in print as headlines. You're like, there's just no way. No, there's not, that's not true. It's got to be some internet lore. no. I mean, just think about it. We're at a point where the, there's a, a, there is a, an effective, this is what's mind-boggling, an effective attack on objective truth by intelligent, reasonable people. That they're being unreasonable. It just, it, it just, it, it just baffles me. Well, it's not, it's not going to get better. We went over the hill. It, it's not, we're not going back up. I, I'd like to have some optimism. It, it's just, it's, gone, it's happened. 
And I don't know what's going to happen, but I just look at it and go, man, how could that, the whole world, it's not just like the, America has now peaked out and they're getting to the peak of most countries that have such power and absolute power corrupts absolutely and you know morality and carnality and all this stuff peak. No, it's all around the world. It's all across the world. So I'm not saying that to discourage you. I'm just saying, you know, there's an attack on the truth, but Jesus puts the emphasis, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. It actually brings clarity when the world produces confusion and all these different things. And so Jesus, I just love that he's praying for us. I, I, I still haven't wrapped my mind around it clear enough to be able to explain it, how it all works. But I just know this. The Bible says that a ferv the, prayer of a ferv the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. All right. So that's this little righteous man right here, this little guy. I mean, by comparison, think about how effective Jesus' prayers are. I hope you're encouraged by this truth. He is praying for us. He's praying for strength. He's, you know, so we got to make sure that we, okay, he is, in a sense, imparting it from the Father, from heaven, if you would, for, our, for us to tap into it. And I like what my pastor used to say. He wanted to be under the spout where the grace comes out. Place yourself where you're flooded by the grace of God. Don't put yourself where you're immersed by the things of this world. Put yourself where you can experience his prayer. Because I, I don't believe that this is an ineffective prayer. I don't think it's a motivational prayer. I think it's absolute truthful prayer from, the, from our Lord. He goes on to say in verse 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe you sent me. It's why we see such an attack by the enemy upon the church in the area of doctrine and division. Because do you see what he was saying here? That the world may believe that you are sent me because there's one, there's oneness, there's unity. And, and, and we know, looking at historically, there's been not just the intellect of man wanting to argue about key points or certain non-key points or doctrine. There's been a spiritual attack upon what God has called the, the ecclesia, the called out ones. Because the enemy wants to, to bring division. There's not a problem. Can we agree there's not a problem with denominations? There's, there's, not, there's, a, there's a vast and beautiful variety and diversity in humanity. Not just in the physical appearance, but in just the, the whole you know, chemical, psychological, experiential makeup that causes the expressions of a person. And so it makes sense that there's a lot of place, different places to gather to worship. Some are very stoic. Some are more epicurean, which is more expressive. And some, you know what I'm saying? And all these different expressions. And, and some are just kind of, they're, they're, they're leaning towards this type of doctrine. And some over here, there's nothing wrong with that. It actually is healthy, I believe. The problem is when there's an overemphasis of the differences, and the differences become the point of division. Oh, you do it that way, we do it that way, so therefore you're wrong, and the way we do it's right. I told a friend, and I still hold on to this, you know, the way we do it here at Calvary Chapel is right. It is. It's the way we do it. If we're not doing it, if it isn't right, we shouldn't be doing it that way, agreed? But that doesn't mean the other group down the street or some other city is doing it wrong. Do you see the importance of being able to say, I, I, I hope we're doing it right. If, if we sense this isn't the way we're supposed to do it, we should stop doing it that way. We should have a sense of direction, and this is how God would have us to do it. But it's not to say, yeah, that other church is struggling because they don't do it the way we do. That's where division comes in. 
And so I think, you know, if you consider in Ephesians where we're to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, we want to recognize the spiritual battle. He's just praying there would be unity and the glory. Verse 22, which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. He, you see how he's revealing even to those who would be in earshot and those of us who are now reading this, this preserved prayer for us to be aware of, he's, he's making known that he will use his people to proclaim his victory and his truth. The primary means by which the, the gospel is proclaimed is through his people. He has the power, the capacity, and the ability to write it in the stars, to etch it in the mountaintops, to arrange. It. The gospel could be declared many different ways, agreed? You look at the creativity in the universe, you look at the colors in the expanse, God could have done a lot of different things. But he chose to make the most important truth of, of eternity. He, he wants it to come through you and me. I just think it's a bad idea in a way, you know what I'm saying? Because I think maybe it would have been better to write in the clouds because they're not going to argue about it. But nonetheless, he just, no, I, I love you guys so much. I want you to share your life with other people's lives. I want you, I want you to be so aware of my presence and so experienced in my love that when people notice the difference, love will emanate from you. Clarity will come from your lips, and, and you, the, the gospel will be declared not in some organized, structured message exclusively, but in a heart-to-heart -heart conversation when people say, so what did, what did God do for you? How, how did you? I, I don't know how to tell you how he did it. All I can say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I mean, you look at some of the scripture where the, the, even those who were healed, like, I don't know what you're talking about. All I know is I was lame, and I couldn't walk, and now I could walk. Deal with it. You know, it's like, it's just like one of those things, like the, the power of God is present. So as we kind of zip along through here, I and them, you and me, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory for which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. I think there's an element there that he's praying that we would have, in a sense, from the scripture, a glimpse of his glory in the future. I believe that's what Revelation reveals so much. The, the final victory and, and a new heaven and a new earth where there's no more sorrow and no more pain and no more suffering. You don't even need the sun or any other you know, luminescence, any light, because his very presence will light it perfectly. I mean, that's just a, that's amazing to be looking, longing for and, and looking towards. Oh, righteous Father, verse 25, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He had said previously in the same gospel, I think it was uh, chapter 13, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples. But what was, it, what was, the, what was the distinctive quality? What was the expression? that you will have love one for another. This is how the world will know. And see, the world sings about it. What the world needs now is love. They actually realize we need something different. I mean, so much of what the pursuits are about are, are actually a, a misunderstanding of what actual love is. It's 
complicated by lust and other things, but you, you get it. People are looking for it. They want to see a life. They want to see our lives as a living manifestation, in other words, a living expression of transformative love, of love that changes. Not just change just so we don't go to the bar on Saturday night and go to, sun, go to church on Sunday. That changes just, that could be just a personal life choice. The world wants to see something different from the inside out, not from the outside in. The people, we know that in our culture. They want, us, they want to have connection. They want to have community. We all desire that. It's a God-given aspect of our existence. I really believe that, that we are created for fellowship. We are created, even though we tell ourselves we don't like people sometimes, but we, the ultimate truth is we, we really energize off people. Have you ever thought about that? I'm not going to get all mystique and all this you into humanism, but you energize off engagement with other people. Because when you're when you're sick, like half of us have been at one point or another in the last couple of weeks, when you're down and you know you're just after a while, there's a loneliness to it, and, and there's a there's an element that comes on your whole being, your emotion, your thought patterns, not only just your feeling. So you you, you just got we do energize up each other. Don't like I say, don't get all humanistic on me and thinking that we create this power. It's just engagement, like mindedness. It's it's fascinating to me. It's way we're designed. It's how we're built. And, and really, we see that the triunity of God, the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, these three personages making one God, conveying also this need for like a relational engagement, if you would. So that's Jesus' prayer. Um, he'll then uh, leave that area. He'll go into, uh, he's going to be, the next chapter will be arrested in the garden. And um, you know the story, we'll dig into it more a little bit, um, some of the story tomorrow night, and then, of course, on Good Friday.